us. Okay, let's jump in. We are part four of this series called The Problem of God. Have you been enjoying this series? Anybody? Somebody placed a yes. Anybody? Three of you, come on. Help me out here. I mean, we've worked hard to pull together this content for you guys. And uh, it's definitely something different. If you've grown up in church, you probably haven't experienced anything like this. If you've ever been in the church, you've never experienced anything like this. And again, just to kind of recap, why are we doing this? Well, usually, if you come to a church like this, we are dedicated and devoted to making God's word practical so we can find hope and help for everyday life. That's what we do here at Lighthouse. And every Sunday you come, we try to deal with real issues, whether it's depression or raising kids or fighting anxiety or how to prioritize. Whatever it is, that's what we want to do. We want to figure out what does God say to us practically that gives us hope and help and inspires us to extraordinary purpose. But every now and again, roughly speaking, every 18 months, we kind of take a time out of normal programming and we have this conversation. And the reason why we have this conversation is because this is the conversation you're having every single day in the world if you're a person of faith or if you know a person of faith. And it is the conversation around, and I'll try to articulate this well, it's the conversation around how can you really believe in God in a 21st century Ireland? Like, are you mad? Like, did your mother drop you in your head? Like, are you, like, what's going, like, how do you still maintain faith despite all that science teaches, despite all the culture is, and all the atrocities that the church have done, uh, has committed throughout time? And so what we've done in this series, we try to have a very rational, logical discourse problem. We use the word problem in the, in the technical sense. A problem is a question raised for inquiry. So this whole question, this whole, this the curiosity around God. We want to have this, this, this logical, rational, as much as possible, fact-based conversation around some of the major pushbacks that our culture and those who, of you who are skeptical in particular have. And way back in week one, we looked at this, this the false dichotomy, because it's not real. Somehow science and faith, science and Christianity are juxtaposed, are against each other. They're not. There are certain parts of science that are right now, you know, trying to figure out how to plug certain gaps. And we believe as Christians, there's an answer to those gaps. Science may not have discovered an answer that agrees with that. But for the most part, mo- most of what we, are, we learn in Scripture is congruent and lines up with science, or should I say correctly, science figures out that what Scripture said is true. And again, if you missed that message, you can go back and watch it on our YouTube channel. At week two, the whole problem of hypocrisy, big pushback in culture is, hey, you Christians are full of hypocrites, and you know, I can't embrace the Christian message because of your hypocrisy, because of the Crusades, and the witch hunts, and, and, and the Inquisition, and all these things. And again, I broke that down historically and accurately and give you data, and hopefully showed you that whatever Christians might have done over a 500-year period, atheists have done immeasurably more in the last 60 years through the regimes of Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and Stalin amongst others that were mentioned. Even though we should never, um, what's the word I'm looking for, we should never hide from responsibilities of church. Where we've done wrong things, the best thing we can do as Christians is put our hand uh, in the air and say, that's on me, I'm bad. But at the same time, a lot of what we're accused of, a lot of flack we get just isn't true. Plus the fact, if the church was full of perfect people, you wouldn't want that either. 
right? Because if you came to a church where everyone really was good and really was perfect, you would never belong there. And the good news for you and me is that none of us would belong there because none of us are perfect. None of us are good enough at being good. That's why God sent Jesus. Last week then, uh, a very fiery one. We looked at the problem of hell and, and that whole conversation. And today then, week four, as we close it off, we're going to deal with the big one. This is probably the stickiest, hairiest, most difficult one to have a conversation about. We're going to talk about the problem of evil and suffering. Most, you know, most scholars call this the rock of atheism. This is the place where people just are, are against the Christian faith. They anchor themselves and say, okay, I, I hear you on science. I hear you in hypocrisy. I even hear you on hell. But I cannot embrace the Christian faith because if God is a good and loving and benevolent God, why would he allow so much evil and suffering in the world. So let's jump in together straight away with a quote from Professor Ronald Nash, who said this, Every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism, theism is the belief of any god, okay, was and is and will continue to be the problem of evil. So again, the question we're going to ask in this final message is, is not what our... Or, or even how is God? It's a why question. It's, it's why are evil and suffering in the world? And like always, I'm not just going to give you the Christian point of view. I'm going to go on a bit of a journey and explore all the different worldviews. So if not the Christian worldview, then what other options do we have? And we're going to try to answer the question, why are evil and suffering in the world? It was David Bentley Hart, the philosopher, who said, one might well conclude that the world contains far too much misery for the pious idea of a good, loving, and just God to be taken seriously. This is again where some of you skeptics say, absolutely. And that any alleged creator of the universe in which children suffer and die hardly deserves our devotion. And again, I agree to a, to a point with, uh, with that comment, and I agree to a point with people who struggle with Christianity because of evil and suffering. I agree with the idea that this subject is incredibly difficult to grasp, incredibly complex to have a proper, informed, rational conversation about, and is also really sticky because, as we're going to see, it isn't just a logical, rational, philosophical conversation. We don't just think about it, we also feel about it. And one of the reasons why I think so many people people viciously and vicariously push against Christianity on this front is because it isn't just a cerebral thing. It isn't just a thing of the mind. It's also a thing of the heart. For uh, David Hume, the great philosopher, said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Well, then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then why is there evil? I think in this this thought, in this in this quote, is basically the the tension of today's talk and the tension of our society. If God is willing but unable, then He's not really God. He's He's got no power, no ability. He's not really a God if He can't stop it. But is He able, not willing? Well, then He's malevolent. He's malicious. He's evil. If somehow He derives satisfaction from watching people suffer, or is He both able and willing? Well, then the question is: If He was, then why? 
why is there evil and suffering? Now, here's a very important thing to note if you're a Christ follower, if you're someone of faith, because like I've said every week, kind of a sub-point for why I'm doing this series is because I am just fed up of watching young people who grew up with faith, grew up with church, or come to Christ at a, at a teenage age, like I did, I came at Christ for at 16, and go to college or go to university and be told by their professors and be told by their history teacher and be, whole, be told by their biology teacher that you're stupid. That you're stupid to believe in God in the modern day Western world. You're stupid to try to be someone who's in a scientific pathway, a science-based career, and somehow try to hold on to God. And that isn't true. The Christian faith is a robust, strong faith that has stood the test of time for over 2,000 years. And again, is not contradicted by many things that popular culture say it is, but actually perfectly dovetails in many ways to what science teaches. And what I want to say to you, Christ Father, is when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering, when we read quotes like this from this great philosopher, what we have to remember is that evil and suffering isn't a Christian problem. It's a human problem. The problem against, against Christianity is not, just, is not just a problem for us, it's a problem for culture, as we're going to see in a second. But again, like I said a moment ago, the reason why this problem is so is felt, so, not just thought about, but felt so much, is because it's more than theoretical, it's more than philosophical, it's personal, it's emotional. People don't just think about evil and suffering, they feel it. Why? Because we've experienced or witnessed or we know someone who's experienced or witnessed or felt or has been the receiving end of evil and suffering. In other words, we don't just think about it, we feel it at a very profound level. And perhaps for me, one of the most interesting places that I see this tension evident is when it comes to the injustice of death. Now, last week in the hell message, or as we could say, last week when we were in hell, uh, we talked about you know, this, this internal drive within human beings against injustice, that we, something in us, something in all of us, regardless of where we are and, and the perspective of faith, that understands that injustice is a bad thing. We, as, as a human species, we value uh, justice. And when it comes to the injustice of debt, something interesting happens because if you are, let's say, strictly speaking, uh, an atheist, you're a naturalist, you're a Darwinian, you're an evolutionary, an evolutionist perspective person, like you're a naturalist, well then, the most natural thing for human beings is to die. So why do we, you, us people in general, who have no faith perspective, no vibe for God, who would say we don't believe in anything, why do we mourn death? I mean, logically speaking, it's just like, it's like as natural as falling asleep, as natural as using the bathroom, as natural as having thirst. Like, it's so natural. You don't go, oh my gosh, I'm thirsty. How terrible is this? You go, oh, I'm thirsty. Like, it's just natural. And, and there's something so natural about death, but every time your face isn't true with the death of a loved one or someone you know, or even just this week, my father was in Australia. He's uh, on a motorcycle run, and there was a terrible accident uh, just on Friday, and one of his good friends was killed on the road, dead, right there, dead, boom, bang, dead. Just like that, gone, 50 years old, boom, gone. And it's like, well, he's riding a motorcycle, so he took, that's a calculated risk, right? And he's going to die. So why should we care? If we're, if we're just evolutionary beings, there's no evolutionary purpose to us living on 3, 4, 5, 10, 15, 20 years mourning the loss of another creature. Unless, of course, something in us, deep in us, witnesses to the fact that we were born and never supposed to die. 
that even though death is natural, it's unjust. Because no person, no creator, no, none of us as parents, come on, I mean, give birth, and the first thought we have is like, oh, you're so beautiful, and you're going to die. I mean, we don't want that. It's terrible. And probably the worst thing any human being can go through is the suffering, pain, or loss of a child. Something in us witnesses the fact that death is, an, and of course, always has been unjust. And again, it's important for you to know if you're a skeptic, Scripture does not shy away from or avoid these hard questions. Scripture is not silent on the questions of evil and suffering and pain in the world. In fact, God's word continually and repeatedly faces the issues of evil and suffering head on. And if you've been part of our church for any time, or if you go on our YouTube channel, you'll see that we've talked about over the years many times struggles and pain and suffering and all these things. Mark Clark says, the whole Bible cares deeply about injustice and suffering. The Bible is, in essence, a story of how evil has affected us through Adam and Eve's fall, Cain's murder of Abel, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, the patriarch's sins, Egypt's oppression of Israel, David's psalm of lament around his own adultery and the tragedy of losing his child, Israel's exile, and the killing and torture of the prophets and God's people, and the long, lonely wait for the Messiah. Christ, Christianity and scripture is not silent when it comes to these complex issues of evil and suffering. But like I said earlier, it's important to know before we jump into the kind of main body of this, that evil and suffering aren't exclusively Christian. This is really important. They aren't exclusively Christian problems. So before we as Christ followers go, oh my gosh, evil and suffering, you're right, there's no God. Hang on a second. Because as we're going to see, as I kind of try to draw this argument, if there is no God, if we, if we, if we could prove today, for some of your, your pleasure, that God is no long, is not, doesn't exist, he's not real, he's gone, our history, gone, then what do we do with evil and suffering? Because it still exists. Eliminating the possibility of God doesn't remove evil and suffering. It explains one thing away, but we're still left with the question, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Evil and suffering, its, its origins and its purposes are not Christian problems alone. It's not, a, it's not, it's not just something for us as a church. It's, it's a people problem. And if you are a skeptic or someone who doesn't embrace the Christian worldview, then here's my question to you before I give you the answer to your question to me, and that is this. What's your answer? How do you logically rationally, scientifically explain the role and purpose of evil and suffering. And before you get cute with yourself and think you can respond with a one-liner, I want to really drill down to the end of this message into the natural selection evolutionary worldview and exactly where that leads us. But before I do that, let me just kind of set a foundation. So when we ask the question, evil and suffering, we think about faith, there's generally three major alternative paradigms. I'm going to give you three. There's more. For example, other religions that are what's called technically uh, jurisprudential religions, religions that are more driven by law, like Islam and Judaism. I mean, they have a whole answer on punishment. But I want to give you three of the main ones that affect our culture today in the Western world. They are New Age, Hinduism, and secularism. And just to say, in case you don't know, all of the notes, because there's a lot of notes today, I won't be able to cover everything, are in the Bible app by you version. So if you want to track along or keep these notes or use them or even scrutinize them, uh, you're free to do that. Just download the Bible app by you version, click on more, click on events, find Lighthouse Church Dublin, and all the notes are there for you for free. Okay, number one. So, New Age. 
So here's one of the major worldviews. And again, not everyone who believes these things would describe themselves as being a new age or someone who has a Hinduistic philosophy, but you hear it in how they speak about these kind of issues. So new age essentially is a worldview established on the belief of pantheism, okay? Pantheism. Pan means all or across, panoramic, all, okay? And so pantheism is the belief that all is one and all is God, Pantheism is is the belief that God is everything and everyone. Not that God is in God's presence. As Christians, we believe in God's what's called omnipresence, like omniplex, omni meaning many, presence. We believe that God's presence is everywhere in the world at all time, but we don't believe the rock is God. God can be in the rock, but the rock is not God. Are you with me? Whereas pantheism is almost like, you know, Star Wars, the force. Like, like God is not a thing. He's, he is everything. And you can't really meet God, talk to God. But somehow God permeates and connects every little thing. And the ultimate goal of the religious practice of pantheism, or worse pantheism, is attaining enlightenment. That somehow by being connected to the force, that we'll attain this higher level of understanding. And that higher level of understanding will release us or free us from all the shackles and bondage of our human construct. Again, New Age is a common worldview, but it's not atheistic. This is where some people get confused because some people say, oh, I'm an atheist, but then, they would say, but then they would say they believe in kind of New Age kind of stuff. And the point to notice here is that New Age, unlike atheism, doesn't suggest that evil and suffering mean God don't exist. Instead, New Ageism believes that evil and suffering themselves don't exist. They're just not real. I mean, negative events, abuse, torture, trauma, death, malevolence in the world. New Age says these things aren't real. The word they use is they use the word Maya. Like they're an illusion. Like pain is an illusion, man. It's not real. The fact that someone raped and killed someone that you love or someone invaded your country or someone torched, it's not real. It's all just an illusion. And again, it's different because where atheists would say, I can't embrace Christianity because, man, look at the evil and suffering in the world. How could a good, loving, benevolent God allow that? New Ages say the whole thing is just an illusion. In other words, New Age, as a worldview, does not dispute the problem of evil and suffering. It simply denies its existence, which is a very attractive way to live, isn't it? What if you could just ignore all the evil and suffering? Wouldn't that be so cool? The problem is you can't. And the problem is, if you're someone who suffered, if, you're, if you've been the receiving end, or if you're a victim of some kind of attack or abuse or, or hurt, if you've ever experienced the pain of betrayal or someone's hurt you, it's not a really embracing worldview for someone to tell you that it's all, everything you've experienced, all the abuse, all the pain, is just an illusion, not very conducive for attracting followers, in my opinion. Second one, then, is Hinduism. And again, you think, how is Hinduism? Uh, a big influence in the Western world. Well, let me break it down. Hinduism is essentially a worldview established on the belief of Kathanotheism, okay? And Kathanotheism, I'll break it down a uh, simple term, is the idea that there are many gods at the same time, but only one should be worshipped any given, any given time. There's like a, an economy of essence, a scale of essence where, you know, there's many, many gods, like there's a plurality of gods, polytheistic, but that one god should be worshipped at a certain time. And ultimately, the ultimate goal of religious practice in Hinduism is what they call moksha. And moksha can be translated, roughly speaking, in our kind of vernacular, as a form of 
spiritual liberation, that somehow by practicing moksha and engaging in worship, by worshiping the right God, the right way, the right time, that we achieve this kind of liberation. And what's really well known uh, from the Hinduistic uh, worldview and religious belief is that when it comes to the question of evil and suffering, Hindus wouldn't say, oh, because even suffering, I can't embrace God. Hindus wouldn't say, well, even suffering uh, is an illusion. What they would say is they would say, evil and suffering are the result of karma, right? And we often say that in culture, don't we? Karma. We watch reels on Instagram about instant karma. And we think it's great and we often joke about his friends. But what really is karma? When you break it down, technically speaking, karma is this impersonal force of justice that operates kind of like the laws of physics, you know, a cause and effect, causing fair outcomes to occur according to how we performed in this life and in our past lives, and the technical term for that is dharma, okay? So depending on how we've, how, if we've been a good boy or a bad boy, we reap what we sow. And again, it's, it's attractive, and, it's, and I can see why for some people in the Western world who like yoga and want to believe in you know, good and so on, why it's attractive. But what people don't realize when they embrace the Hinduistic worldview is that karma isn't just you plant good, you get good. Karma is also you plant bad and you get bad. Ultimately speaking, the Hinduistic or the Hindu worldview when it comes or the Hindu answer to the question and problem of evil and suffering is simply this. If you're suffering, if someone has done something bad to you, if life has just been tough on you, if you're struggling, here's the answer, here's the hope, you deserve it. It's your fault. If you've been abused, raped, if someone's taken from you, stolen from you, lied to you, hurt someone you love, then here's the good news for you if you believe in karma. It's your fault. You made it happen. You're responsible. Not the person who hurt you. You are. And again, we think that's not what I believe, but it is because we hear karmistic or karmatic uh, cliches in our culture all the time. They appear in our vernacular all the time. We say things like, what goes around comes around and we have all etc etc so many cliche statements that we think are just good statements but actually what they're centered on is hindu philosophy and again you know we don't realize this when we embrace it that's the other side this worldview mark clark talks about being in india several years ago he says i was traveling in india i saw hundreds of destitute poor sick and dying people populating the streets and sidewalks they were looking for food money or a drink of water And a particular woman holding a baby who was close to death scratched at the windows of our van. Excuse me, excuse me, sir, she said. She cried with hands outstretched. But our guide told us, you can't give them money if you stop karma from doing its job to this woman and her baby. She'll have to live this suffering again in the next life. In other words, the undying belief in the Hindu religion is that this suffering was deserved, her and her baby, and there was no point in trying to change it because all you're doing is offsetting the inevitable. Now, hopefully, if you, if, you, if you read that like I do and you feel repulsed by it, that's probably a good thing because it is repulsive. Again, if you're someone who holds on to that worldview, I respect your freedom to choose, but I cannot watch a woman suffer and child and simply say we should do nothing about it because somehow this, they're paying a price for some kind of past sin. Again, why that's tough is because that's karma in action. But Christianity isn't only uh, 
opposed to karma, it confronts it. Although even suffering are a reality, we understand that even suffering can be arbitrary. And I understand that's why we struggle sometimes that, that, they need a, that there isn't a reason or purpose all the time behind even suffering. Sometimes evil and suffering is just random. That's why I say arbitrary. Yes, it's connected, we believe as Christ followers, to the choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden to live a life autonomous of God what you talked about last week in the problem of hell. But ultimately speaking, just because we as human beings live outside the guidance and protection of God and therefore live with the circumstances, doesn't mean if you get a flat tire today that God is somehow angry with you. That's karma because you didn't say hello to someone or some weird thing like that. Karma is the belief that we get what we deserve, but the gospel is the truth that we get what we don't deserve. See, Christ didn't come to talk down pain or suffering or avoid pain and suffering. No, God, true Christ, took up our pain and suffering and entered into it. And ultimately, he paid the price by him himself experiencing the full uh, uh, you know, spectrum of what we experience as humans. He was rejected. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was spat on. He was unjustly tried and unfairly sentenced. He was you know, stripped of his, of, his, of his dignity. He was naked. He was beaten. He was, he was tortured. He was crucified. And he died a death he didn't deserve voluntarily so he could open his arms to the world and say, I know your pain. And even though not everything that happens to you has some weird super spiritual meaning, there is purpose in your pain because in your pain you can find Christ. Because he's not a God who's in a cloud in heaven playing a harp. He's a God who came to our world and entered in to our pain. So New Age, Hinduism, number three then, is secularism. So secularism obviously is the most popular worldview in our culture right now. And, a secular, and secularism is essentially a worldview established on the belief of atheism. Theism, belief of God, atheism without God, so a worldview without God. That is the idea that there is no God and hence no divine meaning or purpose to our lives. The ultimate goal of secularism, loosely speaking, is happiness and the pursuit thereof because if there's no purpose in life, what's the ultimate human purpose? Well, to be happy. So what secularism promotes is this idea that you should do everything you can in your power to be happy all the time. Right? Which again sounds very Disney-like until you being happy means you leave your wife or husband. Until you be happy means you leave your kids behind. Until your happiness means you leave your job because you don't like your boss, because work is hard, and you believe you deserve something easier. I mean, happiness is, I'm going to take drugs, I'm going to keep taking drugs, because even though it's destroying my body, I deserve to be happy. And so on the surface, it's wonderful, but those on the receiving end of this worldview might have a different perspective. And again, atheism is punctuated by the aforementioned perspective that the presence of evil and suffering, here's the crux of this, the presence of evil of su- and suffering proves the non-existence of God. I mean, a- atheists push back and say, I don't have answers, don't ask me, but here's what I know for sure. If there is, which there is, evil and suffering in the world, then that equals no God. Right? And again, this is where we find ourselves constantly in tension. But what I want to say to you today, if you're someone who holds this worldview, or if you're someone who's a Christ for a person of faith, is we need to challenge this thought, okay? We can't just take that and go, yeah, yeah, you're right, just, uh, I'm stupid, I'm just a Christian, what do I know? No, hang on a second, like, okay, so I hear your question, I hear your 
problem raised for inquiry, we can have a conversation about that, but we also need to reverse the question and say, well, what's your answer? Because you can't have a logical debate conversation where only one person has to, that's called an interrogation. If only one person has to answer all the difficult questions, that's not a conversation, that's an interrogation. So we need to challenge this worldview. Simply saying God can't exist if there's evil does not make it true. This argument itself is built on a number of assumptions that we need to break down and scrutinize. Now, to do that, I got a list, a kind of, a, if I can, a couple of things that really kind of encapsulate what we believe as Christians. And again, I'm going to take this particular source from a guy called Alvin Plantiga. Alvin Plantiga right now is the most renowned and most revered and respected living philosopher. He's the greatest philosopher that is alive right now. And he happens to be of Jesus following Christian. And so in response to this conversation, he said Christians have five main underpinning beliefs about God that inform our understanding of evil. They are, number one, that God exists. Number two, that God is omnipotent. Omni means all, sorry, omnipresent, I should say. He is all present. Number three, omni. Omniscient, omnipotent should be in there, it's not. Which means, omniscient means he's all-knowing. So he's, he's, all, he's all-present, he's all-knowing. You can throw in there omnipotent, which is all-powerful. Number four, that God is wholly good. I don't mean holy in like he's holy in heaven. I mean holy as completely, like integrally, like in essence. We as Christians believe that God exists. He's everywhere, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's all-good. And then number five, evil exists. And again, you can't have a Christianity without number five. It's tempting for us, and there have been people with you know, TV ministries that have tried to create a Christianity on these four things. But the truth is, if you cannot create, you cannot follow, you cannot preach or proclaim a Christian message or the gospel without the existence and reality of evil. Now, atheists, look at this list. I mean, this is true for you as a skeptic. And they push back. And what they say is, they argue... All these assertions can't all be true at the same time. Like if God exists, just go back for a second, sorry. If God exists, there we go. If God exists, well, then there can't be evil. If God is everywhere, then there can't be evil. If God knows everything, there can't be evil, and ultimately four and five. If God is wholly good, then... Why does evil and suffering exist? So they say these assertions can't all be true at the same time. Yet Plantiga himself asserts that atheists must provide some proofs as to why. Because it's easy to say that, but do you have proof? In other words, it's not enough to say simply they can't all be true. There has to be a certain level of proof or logical discourse to say why they can't be proved true. Additional proof is required for certainly none of them, that is atheists, this is Plantica speaking, have succeeded in providing any. This is the world's greatest philosophy saying if, if, if a Western culture, if the, if, the, if the mainstream secular worldview says, oh, I can't embrace God and Jesus because there's so much evil and suffering. We say, well, we believe God is good. And they say, well, if God is good, why is there even suffering? We say, well, those things can coexist. And they say, well, no, they can't. And then you say, well, why? Oh, because it's just, just because. And you go, well, what proof? What logical reason? What discourse? And what Plantica says is that none of them, and I guess he means all of the even academic types, have been, have been successful in actually providing any logical, rational, reasonable purpose, foundation, or proof as to why these things cannot coexist. It was J.L. Mackey, the philosopher, said, 
a good thing, i.e. God, always eliminates evil as far as it can. And that there are no limits to what an omnipotent thing can do. In other words, this is kind of what, what people push back on. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, all-present, all-good, then he should be able to eliminate evil. He should be able to eradicate the world of evil. God should eliminate all evil because he's all-good and all-powerful. But again, this leads into a very interesting, and please stick with me because I'm going to go on a little bit of a trail here. And we're going to do, okay? This leads into a very interesting philosophical dispute. And that is the dispute of the elimination of evil versus the greater good. And again, I won't, you know, try to get too deep into this because it is a massive conversation still happening today. But there is a philosophical conversation around this idea, if all evil is evil and all good is good, then what happens to the good that comes out of evil? Or happens to good that becomes evil? You all watch movies, right? Don't good guys become bad guys? And bad guys become good guys? And who knows precisely where the lines are between where we should execute someone? They're definitely always going to be a bad guy. Or is there a hope of redemption? Or what do we do when a good guy who we trust, oh, keep the good guy, becomes a bad guy? What happens if something good comes out of something bad? Like we talked about, for example, we're going to mention in a few minutes, Hitler, right? So, so to, to liberate the peoples of Europe... Someone had to kill Hitler. Murder's a bad thing, right? But a good thing was going to come out of it. What if someone is attacked and raped and all these kind of things and a child is born and goes on to become an Einstein? I mean, I'm not saying that we, we, we justify the bad in the world. What I'm saying is, is the relationship between good and evil are so entangled, they're so nuanced, they're so complex, that it's not like cutting a piece of toast in two and saying, that's the bad side. When you burn your toast, the whole thing's burnt. So which side do you cut off? And again, I'm not saying I have answers, I'm just saying there's a, there's a raging philosophical debate around this issue. Where is the line between good and evil? evil. Mark Clark says, with this in mind, we must admit that an omnipotent being could permit as much evil as he pleased so long as for every evil state of affairs he permits, there's a greater good. Thus, while the idea of God and evil existing together may be difficult for us to accept, the two are not actually incompatible. Atheism assumes they are, but fails to prove the contradiction. It was William Alston who said, philosopher, the idea that evil disproves, the, the idea that evil disproves the existence of God is now acknowledged on almost all sides to be completely bankrupt. Because like I said, if the, if the existence of evil disproves the existence of God, which it can, that's the point we're trying to make here, then, then what, what do we do in the world? If, if God could just click his fingers and eliminate evil. Listen carefully. If God could do a Thanos on the world and eliminate evil, we'd all be gone. You know why? Because you're evil. And I'm evil. And we're evil. Don't, don't sit there and look at me and say, oh, I'm, I'm not evil. I'm not a Hitler. I'm not a... Yeah, but you've lied. And you've cheated. And you've betrayed. And you know what the most evil thing in the world is? Hurting those you love the most. Hurting those that trust you the most. What greater evil could there be than to, than to take advantage of the love and trust of others and use it to hurt them? And there isn't a single person online or in this room who has never done that. If you're a child, you're doing to your mother since the minute you can walk and talk. 
It's mine. No. Getting makeup and markers and wrecking out. I mean, it's just, it's just in us. And so if we expect God, if he's truly love and da, 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 to eliminate all evil, then we'd all be gone. How is that a logical, rational possibility? To which the question becomes, well, where, where, what is the purpose, what is the place of evil and suffering in the world? And we're going to see in a second. And even if you go, okay, well, we'll keep evil and suffering, but still God's exist, then how do we explain evil and suffering? You see, although skeptics push back on the, on the existence of God, because of the presence of evil and suffering, it could be argued that the opposite is true. By what do I mean? By this, that the reality of evil and suffering actually reveals the existence of God. That maybe, and stay with me here, maybe the reality of evil and suffering actually, rather than disproving, actually proves the existence of God. Rather than being a criticism, maybe it's evidence for his existence, which you go, well, how is this? I mean, how does that make any sense? Well, let me ask you a question. Why do we even have a category for evil? Why do we even have a category for evil? In a worldview void of God, how do you, precisely speaking, explain evil? This is not, does it not all become objective to the point which I mentioned back in week, week two and week three? Does not, do these values not just become so subjective that the person with most power gets to choose? Who decides in Russia what's evil or not evil? And the answer is the person with most power. Is that true? Is that right? Is that, that's where atheism brings us, right? Christianity doesn't take us there, but atheism does. That ultimately speaking, it's good to have these conversations when you're sitting in, in a Starbucks coffee, sitting in your latte, free and full of life and money in your pocket. But when you're on the receiving end of the malevolence of a person that has no value for God, and you say it's evil, by what definition? Where did evil come from? What is its purpose? And how would you even notice if it wasn't God? Because how we notice evil, how we know evil, is because, because our worldview is predicated on certain values. Values like people are good. People have intrinsic va- value and worth. People are valuable. People are noble. Watch this. People are created in the image and likeness of God. To sin against someone else and to hurt someone else isn't just a crime against humanity. It's a crime against God. Now again, you remove God and rationally, logically, historically, where does it come from? The existence of these convictions, scholars would say, point us to the reality of God. It was, again, to quote a good old-fashioned Irishman, it was C.S. Lewis who talked about his own conversion, said, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up on my idea of justice by saying it was all nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on me saying that the world was really unjust, not just simply that it did not happen to please my fantasies. You get what he's saying? What he's saying is that if there's no standard to, of, of, if there's no standard of comparison, if there's no standard to which we say something is just or unjust, then how do we even have a, a rational conversation where we put God in trial? Like define evil. Like is, is evil the fact that I went to Starbucks this morning for a coffee and the card machine wasn't working? Is that evil? 
evil. Is that just misfortunate, unlucky, life? I don't know. We do believe here in this church that demons live in the wires. There's always something going wrong around here. I don't know. But like, is that evil? You may say, don't be ridiculous. But what if I really believe it's evil? Really believe? What if I really believe that they're, 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 they're responsible and the only solution is to burn the whole place down? Well, you can't tell me I'm wrong because there's no standard for evil. We say, oh, come on, there's an economy of essence. But for where does that come from? The truth is, throughout history, the reasons why cultures valued the equality of all skin colors, sexes, and all these things is because the, most of the Western world was characterized and predicated in a Christian worldview. It doesn't mean that everyone who led our authority in the Western world was good and Christian, but the values that drove our culture and give us our freedom come from Scripture. Not from some random, enlightened, logical, rational, 1800, 19th century philosopher. It comes from the Bible. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity into a man's heart. Something in us deep, deep down knows, number one, that we're created for purpose. And number two, as unnatural, sorry, as unjust and unnatural as death is, death is not the end. Something in us knows. We see it in our movies and our songs and our culture. So even if we don't believe in God, even if we say we're secularists, something in us connects this sense of understanding that there is something beyond this world that we live in. And how Christianity responds to that is by going back to the beginning. The idea that we were designed to live in a world without sin and death. We were made for a different world than the one we live in. And rather than evil and suffering proving God's non-existence, perhaps evil and suffering point us towards his existence, that we are out of sync, that we are out of whack that we chose to come out from the covering of our Father in heaven and chose to bear the brunt of the consequences of our autonomy, which we do. And like I say all the time, listen carefully, it isn't, it isn't just some malevolent evil force right now causing terror in the Ukraine. It's people. People are killing people. People are raping people. People are stealing people. And throughout history, in your culture, whatever your country of origin was, it wasn't God or lack of God or some... It was people who hurt people. Evil doesn't just happen 99% of the time. It's people who abuse and take advantage of and destroy other people. And what Christianity says is the reason for that is because we have chosen the path of autonomy. And it isn't just autonomy from God. It's autonomy from each other. I don't care about you. You're not my responsibility. Like one generation after Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, what was the question Cain asked of God when God asked Cain, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for that guy? No. Fair game. It's a competition. It's a dog-eat-dog world. At the very beginning of time, we see the result of sin in the world. That sin gives us creates so much pride within us that we're prepared to do whatever it takes to get what we deserve to become happy in this life. And more and more and more as our culture right now in Ireland embraces a secularistic worldview, the question of what defines evil is becoming grayer and grayer and grayer. Because it seems like it depends on whatever who's in power decides it is. And again, we've seen that in recent years, even in certain referendums. You see, another of history's greatest skeptics, this isn't just a modern thing, came to faith not in the absence of, pre- uh, not in the absence of, but in the presence of evil and suffering. 
He said, when I left home to take this chair of state, I requested my countrymen to pray for me. I was not then a Christian. When my son died, the severest trial of my life, I was not then a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg, a famous battle that happened in America, and looked at the graves of our dead heroes who'd fallen in defense of their country, I then and there consecrate myself to Christ. Yes, indeed, I do love Jesus, President Abraham Lincoln. And again, if I had time, I'd go on to list all the other, not just political and social activists like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and so on, who fought for a worldview that we agree is right, but was informed and created by their faith in Jesus. Now again, skeptics push back and say, well, you know, these moral categories are the result of evolutionary theory. So you say, so you say well, okay, so, you're, so what you're saying, Jamie, is the reason why we have these moral standards is because of God's word. Yes. Well, a skeptic push back and say, well, no, I think we've created these moral constructs uh, through our learning and evolving as a people that came from evolutionary maturity. Okay, well, let's examine that proposition. So the question is, where do right and wrong come from? And the answer is to a skeptic, we evolved uh, as evolutionary beings and we create these moral constructs versus God inherently infused these values in our DNA. We know them to be right. Okay, so concepts like right and wrong, uh, as seculars would say, resulted from the intrinsic need to survive. So for example, they'd say, well, if you're in a tribe and you need 10 guys to hunt an elephant, well, then it's not good for us to kill each other because none of us eat and we all die. Classic evolutionary argument. And again, on the surface, that seems to make sense, but at a, on a deeper level, it doesn't really fit the rationale of natural selection. Remember in week one, natural selection says survival of the fittest. So if you're watching the new Lord of the Rings series right now, anybody? And you have the uh, hobbits are walking on foot. What do they do if you get left behind? They leave you, right? That's, that's nature. If you're weak and you can't keep up, we're not going to sacrifice the health and well-being of the pack for one in need, we're going to allow you to stay behind and die. And again, you think, well, that's a bit harsh, but it's true. Like, what is more natural in the animal kingdom than violence and suffering? Do you watch National Geographic? Have you ever seen a lion eat an antelope alive? Did you see this this week in Indonesia? Some granny went picking fruit and went missing and two years later found her in the belly of a python? You go, that's terrible. That's nature. That's natural. And for those of you who you know, are uh, vegetarian types, which is cool, and you think there's nothing more humane than not eating an animal, the most violent way an animal dies is in the mouth of another animal. Like being given an instant death and not knowing you're in a barbecue an hour later is surely better than chewing the cud as someone's eating your intestines. Choose a thought for free. There's nothing more natural in the, in the animal kingdom than violence and suffering. To say that we evolved these sophisticated moral constructs because we wanted to somehow survive is nonsense. I mean, look at Adolf Hitler. I mean, he took Darwinism to its natural conclusion. This is very important. In his 1925 book, Mein Kampf, German for My Struggle, he wrote, If nature does not wish that the weaker individual should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle with an inferior one. Because in such cases, 
all her efforts throughout hundreds of thousands of years is to establish an evolutionary higher stage of being may thus be rendered futile. He who does not wish to fight in this world where permanent struggle is the law of life has no right to exist. And more than just being a footnote or a thought or a comment, that became a reality when he personally exterminated over six million people. What was he doing? He was bringing Darwinian evolutionism logically and rationally to its fullest maturity. If the whole purpose that we evolve, then we don't go back and help. The weak, if the weak are weak, it's their fault. It's almost, there's almost like a bit of karma attached to this whole thing. Again, you read that and what you should be thinking is, is that's repulsive? And it is. But Mark Clark would say, the very fact that something within us is repelled by racism, sexism, unequal treatment of the poor and disabled begs the question that such convictions would have to come from somewhere else because they're not natural. These are not natural things. We don't do this. Something in us, call it a conscience, call it God's spirit, call it, I don't know, the fingerprint of a higher being. Something in us witnesses to the fact these aren't good. But when we look at it logically and rationally, if we take Darwinism and evolutionary thought to its fullest extent, it, it makes sense. And again, let me give another hor- hor- horrific example. There was a, a case in 1997 called the Prom Mom Murder. In 1987, Melissa Drexler was 18 year old, years old at her prom, which is like a Debs, and gave birth to a healthy baby. Once giving birth, she cut the umbilical cord, strangled the baby to death, and threw it in the bin and went back dancing. A Darwinian evolutionary theorist and authority wrote after the event in the New York Times, we must understand that we are all descendants of women who have made the difficult decision allowed to them to become grandmothers in an unforgiving world and that we inherited the brain circuitry that led to those decisions. He went on to argue that natural selection affects our behavior by endowing us, giving us emotions that coax us towards adaptive choices. A capacity, he says, for neonaticide, which is the killing of babies, is built into the biological design of parental emotions. If a newborn is sickly or survival is not promising, listen carefully, they may cut their losses and favor the healthiest in the litter. Quote, unquote, Stephen Pinker. One of the most quoted atheists I come across in my conversations. He thinks that nothing is more natural than if a woman has to kill and strangle her child so that stronger, healthier babies are born, then that should be fair game in an evolutionary sense. And again, you know, you look at that and you go, that's crazy. Next slide, guys. It's there. The quote was there. And it was J.L. Mackey who said that if God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. And because there is so much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, then a traditional worldview, a traditional worldview of God, a traditional faith for God, cannot exist. And again, this is like the last pushback before we pray. You know, if, if there is no God, and if evil is arbitrary, then what's the point? What's the point? Again, I, I, I like you, I have stories. I mean... I remember a few years ago, I uh, just moved to Navin, I started a church, and uh, one day I got a phone call to say my 20-year-old cousin 
had rolled over in her sleep, she had epilepsy, and died, smothered, died. Three days later, after doing her funeral and driving back to Nav, get a phone call from in our church to say her nephew was swimming in the swimming pool and had drowned. I was dead. So in two weeks, I buried two young people. And you look at it and you go, what the heck is going on? This is crazy. And you ask all these kind of questions about life and meaning and purpose and where is God and why not and why not and so on. And what it comes down to is very often, because we're feeling these things, right, because they're real to us and they are very real, we're not exactly thinking rationally. And what we're ultimately saying in in our pain is that we think in our suffering that we would do a better job of being God than God does of being God. Which, when it comes to the loss of someone innocent and someone young, that makes sense. But when it comes to you having power over your enemy, that's trouble. Because what happens if you had the power to invade a neighboring nation? What if you had the power to make people you don't like disappear? What if you had the power, like we said in the last 60 years, that most of the European atheistic leaders had to literally exterminate hundreds of millions of people? It was Malcolm Muggeridge who said, a former agnostic politician and journalist, Indeed, I can say with all truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been true affliction and not true happiness. In other words, if it were possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence through some drug, the result would not be to make life delectable, that is delicious and delightful, but to make it too banal and trivial to be durable. What's he saying? What he's saying is that if somehow, if we can't, if we can't, pr- dispro- if we can't prove the non-existence of God through evil and suffering, and we are left evil and suffering, uh, why doesn't God take away? And the point he's making is that if we eliminate evil and suffering, there's a part of our journey, a part of our meaning, there's a part of life that will be lost, that will make life so banal, because it's in our falling down that we learn to get back up again. It's in our pain that we grow as people. It's in our failure that we learn what it means to succeed. If all that was taken away from us, all we'd be is, is robots functioning without a soul. And again, I'm not saying that that, that excuses or justifies all the evil in the world. I'm just pointing out, like, like Malcolm says, that ultimately speaking, there, there is something, that can own, something good that can only be found to the suffering of pain. And so as we conclude, what does Scripture say to this? Well, Scripture says, evil's bad. And suffering's wrong. And these things aren't designed by God on purpose for God to judge or somehow punish us. These things are the consequences of the human choice of autonomy. If my son does not listen to my guidance and wisdom as a father and choose to go on his own, in his own power, then what happens to him is his responsibility. He chose to come out of the covering and wisdom and direction and best interests Oh, his father, he could label it controlling. He could label, oh, you're a drag, you're boring, you want to steal all my fun. But a 15-year-old shouldn't drive a motorbike without a helmet 90 miles an hour while sipping coffee. As parents, we understand certain things because we've learned ourselves and we don't impose uh, restrictions or boundaries on our kids because we're old or out of touch or trying to make their lives boring. It's because we love them. But eventually, at some point, usually 18, we don't have that control anymore. They're, they now choose, by virtue of their own free will, to listen to us. And if they don't choose to listen to our advice, and if they choose 
bad paths and bad choices that lead to bad consequences, even though we're, we're heartbroken and we're connected and we do all that we can with all of our power to help them, ultimately, it's their choice. And in the Garden of Eden, God gave humanity the, the possibility of autonomy. Sometimes I think, oh God, like, why? Like if we had no choice, there'd be no death, no suffering, no pain, no heartache, no divorce, no stillbirths, no wars, no recessions, no homelessness. Like we'd always be living in a constant state of bliss with you in heaven. But then how would we know if you really love God if we had no choice? We wouldn't know because the category wouldn't even be available to us. So here's what scripture says about evil and suffering. God did not create evil and suffering. It came as a consequence of our choice. Despite that, God redeems our suffering. Suffering is meaningful in the Christian worldview. Dr. Timothy Keller says, Christianity teaches us that contra fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. God may not cause the pain in our lives, in our world, but God redeems our pain. There is purpose in our pain. In Genesis 50 and verse 20, the story of Joseph, you know Joseph, technicolor, dream coat, his brothers betrayed him, beat him, sold him into slavery, basically, for all intents and purposes, killed him. But God rescued him, and God redeemed him, and God was with him in his pain. And when Joseph was a, an alien in a foreign country, when Joseph was abandoned, when Joseph was in prison, when Joseph was falsely accused, every part of Joseph's journey, God was with him every step of the way. And God gave him strength and purpose so he could say in Genesis 50, you meant evil against me. You people, you meant evil against me. But God used it for good. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And that word atoning is a technical, biblical term. And it means all the weight of our pain and suffering, all the, all the hardship and heartache, all the, the poor choice that we make, all the evil in us was put on Jesus. And in exchange for all of the evil on us, we received from our Father in heaven because of Jesus' sacrifice, life and love and liberty. True freedom is not saying yes to everything. That's hedonism. True freedom is being able to say no to something because you love someone else. And finally, Romans 8.28, that we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It's not saying all things are good because a lot of things are not good, right? A lot of things that happen in our lives are not good, but that in all things, good or bad, evil, pain, suffering, war, recession, famine, abuse, torture, even in death, there's a promise of hope and help and life. And so as I conclude this message, as I conclude indeed the series, you may say, I can't embrace the Christian message because of evil and suffering. Well, I say, well, what, what's the alternative? You want to go the naturalist route? The lion eats the zebra as he's sit, sitting there chewing the grass. Is that really what you want to pin, hang your life on? 
Or could there be something meaningful? Could there be purpose? Could God redeem our story, redeem what was taken away from us and use it as a force of good to help other people in the world? I think you'll find, when you look through our history, our great leaders like Mandela, God of Martin Luther King Jr., obviously lost his life for his belief in the equality of all races. And many, many other men and women, I've even mentioned in the series, Dr. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who died in a concentration camp World War II. I think you'll find over and over and over again these people who hold this worldview that God is good and God is worthy of trust aren't people who never suffered pain. They all suffered. And some even died because of what they believed in. But they still felt it was worthwhile because well, life with God, a life that's following Jesus is a life that has available hope and help. Not just now, for today's challenges, but forever, for all the challenges of eternity. So as we pray, I don't know where you are in this whole journey. It's been an interesting few weeks. But I want to encourage you, if you would even just be open to the possibility, if you would even, just, just for a few moments, just be, be willing to be wrong in, a, in, a, in, a, in an intellectual sense. Be willing to, to say, you know what, maybe, maybe all the things I believe, all the things I hold to aren't as secure and aren't as deep as I thought they were. Maybe, maybe this is an opportunity for you to at least open your heart to God and say, if you're out there, man, I'm in pain. I try to, I try to use this pain to, to excuse away your existence, but actually maybe you're the one that can heal my pain and redeem my pain and make it meaningful. Hey, we don't want to just finish this day like a, church service we want I believe God is in this room and I know for me he rescued me and my life was a mess my life still is a mess but it was a lot more messier back then there's a lot of things in my story my background that caused me a lot of pain I used to hate God and be angry at God I used to blame God and one of the reasons why I couldn't follow God was because of it but when I opened my heart to experience his love when I realized I was the one pushing him away, he wasn't the one pushing me away. I allowed him space. Man, my whole life changed. I thought all of a sudden things got easier and Tinkerbell came with a wand and folded my clothes every morning and maybe breakfast and coffee on demand. But that no matter what I went through, I had this sense like Joseph that God was with me, helping me, guiding me, making me better. And wherever there's pain and suffering, he was redeeming it and working through it and, and using it according to his purpose to make me in the world a better place. If not God, then who? If not Christianity, then what? If not Jesus, then where? My challenge to you is, you've given everyone else a shot, right? Some of you have tried drugs. Some of you have tried all sorts of other worldviews. Why not, why not really give God a shot and see if he does not change your life forever? Why not give God a chance?